0: Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at Bethelpbc.us. It is our happy privilege now to open the Holy Scriptures together, and I invite you to join me, if you will, in the 13th chapter of the Gospel According to John. John reading verses 31 to 35 as we speak on a new commandment. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children... Yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Last Lord's Day morning, we looked at Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, and the great commandment. One of the Jews had asked Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answered him, it is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. That's the first and great commandment. But then he adds, the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two commandments, he says, hang all the law and the prophets. And that means the 10 commandments can be summarized in terms of these two. The vertical commandment to love God with everything that we are and everything that we have. And the horizontal commandment to love others as we love ourselves. Now the fact is, Each of us loves himself and herself. I love myself enough to rest when I'm tired and to bathe when I'm dirty. I care about my appearance and what others think. I love myself enough to take an aspirin or an analgesic when my head is hurting and to eat when I'm hungry. Each of us naturally loves self but we are to display and convey the same kind of care toward others that we naturally have for ourselves. That's what the second commandment says, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Just as you love yourself, you're to love your neighbor. And Romans 13 verse 10 tells us that love, therefore, is the fulfilling of the law. For love worketh no ill to his neighbor. In this 13th chapter of John's gospel, however, Jesus takes that second commandment and enlarges it and embellishes it even further, and he calls it a new commandment. Listen to our text. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, the second commandment says that we're to love others as we love ourselves. But here, Jesus says, here's a new standard by which you are to measure your love. As I have loved you, not just as you love yourself, but as I have loved you. That's how we're to love one another. We're to love each other following the cue of our Savior's love for us. You may know that John chapter 13, where we've taken our text this morning, is the first chapter in the Upper Room Discourse. It's one of the most important sections in the New Testament, John 13 through 17. These five chapters contain the upper room discourse. About 25% of the Gospel of John is concerned with just these few hours that the disciples and Jesus spent together in the upper room. And it was such a formative experience in John's life, apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, that in 1 John, John highlights and develops many of the same themes that are developed here in the upper room passage of John 13 through 17. The similarities between this section in John's Gospel and the little epistle of 1 John suggest to us that the upper room experience was profoundly formative in the apostle John's life. Remember, he calls himself that disciple whom Jesus loves. He never calls himself by name, I'm just the one that Jesus loved. He's the one that leaned his head on Jesus breast at supper. And love for Christ and love for others, which is one of the themes of the upper room discourse, is developed by John in a very wonderful way. In fact, in the reading just now, We read where Jesus calls his disciples little children, little children, verse 33, yet a little while am I with you. And interestingly, we get the word pediatrics from that. Padilla is the Greek word. It has reference to little bitty children. And a pedagogue is a group of little students. Well, Jesus calls his disciples little children. It's a very tender term. John borrows that same expression to speak of the church in his first epistle. He takes his cue from Jesus. He models Jesus' message, models Jesus' heart and his attitude and his emphasis in First John to talk about what it means to be a Christian. And perhaps the premier connection between these two sections of scripture, John 13 to 17 and the book of 1 John, is this emphasis on love, for John is going to embellish and develop that even further in 1 John. We'll go there in just a moment. But I want you to notice in our text that this commandment to love is a commandment, a new commandment I give unto you. In fact, this has been called the 11th commandment. You see, I thought there were only 10. Well, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. I think it's significant to note that this is not a suggestion to be considered. It's not a proposal to be pondered, but it's a commandment to be obeyed. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. Now, what I'm saying in other words is it's a law. And perhaps you resist the idea this morning and say you can't legislate love, you can't legislate an emotion, Well, Bible love, this should teach us, is not first and foremost a mere emotion. Yes, there are affections and emotions involved in it, but at its root, the definition of love in the scriptures is not the same as it is in popular culture. Love in the Bible is not first a feeling, but it's a way of treating and behaving toward another person. It is a matter of self-sacrifice for the benefit of another. Bible love means that we act in a way that makes the loved one great. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 13, charity is defined not in terms of descriptors or adjectives, but it's defined in terms of actions. Love does something. It behaves patiently, not rudely. It behaves kindly toward others. It behaves unselfishly. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter of the Bible teaches us that biblical charity is an action, and you can command actions or behavior. You see, a law is a governing principle, and what this passage is teaching us when Jesus says a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another is that Love is the fundamental law of Christ's kingdom. The goal toward which the church must strive is not cultural relevance or popularity. I suggest there are many people who make that their priority these days. Many churches that say we want to fit in. We want the world to think that we are relevant. That's not our goal. The goal of the church is not self-perpetuation and dominance over perceived rivals. The goal of the church is love. A new commandment I give unto you, Jesus says to his disciples, that you love one another. And This is precisely what Paul teaches in First Timothy chapter 1, verse five, when he says, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and a pure conscience and faith unfeigned. What is the goal of all gospel preaching? Why do we preach the word? Here's the goal, the end of the commandment. Here's what it should issue in. Here's the result for which we're striving. The end of the commandment is charity or love out of a pure heart. We want to see churches and the people in it grow more loving. The end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. So the goal of the church is love. Now, we should not object to that idea that love between fellow believers is a law, for the law of love has been written in our hearts in regeneration. It is a fact that when you were born again, every one of us, we were given the love of God, which was shed abroad in our hearts. And the apostle refers to this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, when he says, As touching brotherly love, brethren, you need not that I write unto you, For you are taught of God to love one another. When God teaches us to know him, at the same time, he teaches us in our hearts to love his people. He writes the principle of love within us. By the way, that's not something that is in us by nature. Here's our condition by nature, Titus 3.3, We ourselves also were sometimes foolish, deceived, disobedient, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Do you know what that passage in Titus 3 is teaching? It's teaching that by nature we are hateful and hating one another. This tendency to look on others as rivals and as competitors and as perhaps even enemies. This desire to take advantage of whomever in order to promote myself. This kind of malice when someone else is prospering. Malice, envy, hatefulness... All of that is indigenous to our hearts by nature. We're born into this world self-centered. Now, I know your children were the best children that have ever come down the pike. But the fact is, if you remember, those little fellows and little ladies are the picture of selfishness, aren't they? Are they really interested in others or are they interested in self? It comes naturally to them. They come prepackaged with this self-concern, self-centeredness. And that's natural to them. And by nature, my friends, that plays itself out in malice, envy, hatefulness, war, conflict, tension, relational stress. And we see it all around us, don't we? That comes from our hearts by nature. My friends, you show me somebody that loves other people. Not just their own family, for even the world loves its own. The Bible teaches us in this upper room discourse that the world loves its own. We're not talking about just a preference for family, for me and mine, for us four and no more, but we're talking about a genuine love for those that are not in and of themselves worthy of our love, worthy of our notice, worthy of our attention, but you see that desire to help others and to include others and to encourage others, that unselfish kind of characteristic is a testimony to the grace of God in our hearts it's only because of divine grace that anybody is truly concerned for his brothers and his sisters in Christ this is what first John 3:14 means when it says we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren love for the brethren is one of the first evidences of a gracious state Now let's turn for a moment, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 13. We're talking about the fact that brotherly love is the 11th commandment. It's a new commandment. And yes, the first commandment is to love God with all of our hearts. But my friends, this second commandment is likened to it. It's equally important. Now, in sequence, it must come after love for God. But yet, it is still vital and essential. And in fact, Paul tells us how essential it is. Now in 1 Corinthians 13, listen to the first verse. He says to the church at Corinth, which was competing against itself, that is, there were members in that church that were showcasing their spiritual gifts to the exclusion of the others. They wanted preferential treatment. They wanted to be prominent. And Paul says, gifts without graces equal nothing. Listen to this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... That is, if I had tremendous rhetorical skills, I could weave a sentence together. I had the gift of gab. He says, if I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Now, like, you know, drums and percussion instruments, cymbals and tambourines and timpani drums and snare drums. But I want to ask you, my friends, if that's all you have, And you don't have other instruments to go with it. Is that a beautiful melody? Now, I know drummers like to hear drum solos. But I have to admit to you, I like to see a drum as the supporting cast, not as the lead actor. You know, a a cymbal is good in its place. A timpani drum is good in its place, but I don't want to hear that and that alone. I want there to be some violas and violins and oboes and trombones and clarinets as well. Well, the person who can speak with tremendous ability, but yet he doesn't have love, he said, he's like a clinging gong, a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And he says, though I have the gift of prophecy. Notice here's a very talented person, the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries. I can measure what's happening around me and understand how it all fits together, and I can explain it. And though I have all knowledge and have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And then he says, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, here's somebody that is working feverishly to serve the Lord. And he gives his body to be burned. That is, I'm even willing to die as a martyr for the cause of Christ and have not charity. It profiteth me nothing. What the apostle is saying in this passage is that love is primary. Love is the priority. Love is preeminent. Love is the cardinal Christian virtue. And the goal of discipleship, therefore, is not simply to be civil, or to be friendly, or to be courteous. All of that's important, but that's not the ultimate goal. The goal of discipleship is to love one another. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Love is basic and essential to the definition of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice in our text, not only does he say it's a commandment, he says it's a new commandment. And in what sense, we ask the question this morning, is this command to love one another new? Interestingly, I said John takes his cue from this upper room passage in his first epistle. If you'll turn with me to 1 John, keep a finger there in John 13, turn to 1 John chapter 2, you read where he uses similar language to what Jesus uses. talking about old and new, a new commandment. John says in 1 John 2, 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. Do you see the similarity in emphasis? The old commandment is the word which you've heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. Now, you say, I have no idea what he's saying. It's not new, it's old, but yet again, it is new. John is saying, here's a paradox. There is a sense in which this commandment to love other people is not new, it's old. In fact, it goes all the way back to Leviticus 19.18 in the law, Where the Lord says, thou shalt not avenge thyself nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Now that's Leviticus 19.18. God told the children of Israel, you're not to bear a grudge against your neighbor. You're not to avenge yourself against your neighbor. You're not to take matters into your own hands through vigilante justice. But you are to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. So in that sense, it's been around since Leviticus. It's not new. It's it's an old commandment. But John then says, again, a new commandment I write unto you. And it's new in this sense. He explains it in that verse. Because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. In other words, we're living in a new covenant. We're living in a new day. The shadows of the law have now faded away. In fact, they dissipated because the true light, the sun has come out, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It did not overcome it. The darkness fled when the light came. The true light now shineth. Since Jesus Christ has come into this world, we have a new understanding of what it means to love others. And John says it's a new commandment. Now it's not new in terms of time then, it's it's old, but yet it's new in terms of emphasis. For love has been given a new place of prominence in the new covenant. 1 Peter 4.8 has this under consideration when Peter says, Above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. Now, he's been telling us a number of things to do, but he says, brethren, this is the most important. Above everything else, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And in the very next verse, he says, use hospitality one to another. That is, let people into your home. Share what you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I want to say this may sound old hat to us this morning. Very familiar. We've heard it many, many times. But if you think about it and the contrast of this Christian ethic to what is characteristic of the world in which we live, it is truly amazing. It's phenomenal. For the world in which we live this morning, my friends, is a very private and self-centered culture. Have you noticed the privatization of pop culture in the past 40 or 50 years? It seems that There was once a time when folks knew their neighbors, they conversed with one another, they had a circle of friends that was community-wide. Sunday morning at church was a time of rekindling our love and affection for one another. But anymore, very few of us get together, spend time together. In fact, it's easy to just go our own separate ways. And even those who profess to be Christians, we come to church But as soon as the amen is said, or sometimes before, folks exit from the premises and don't contact each other, don't think about each other. It's just us four and no more. And the idea of a culture of discipleship, of a collective, has been lost, I think, as Americans have become more individualistic. What I'm saying, dear friends, is that love for the brethren is the number one criteria by which a church should be measured and by which a church should be judged. Now, perhaps you say this morning, Brother Mike, I don't know of a church that fits this criteria. And the fact is that every one of them falls far short, ours included. But we need to strive to be better. For Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If you have love one to another, Indeed, there's nothing more important. This is the main rule by which the church is to function. Let me give you a few verses real quickly. Galatians 6.10, he says, Do good to all men, especially to them that are of the household of faith. We ought to be especially kind and loving and generous to our brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Peter 2.17, love the brotherhood, honor the king, be patient to all men love the brotherhood. There is a brotherhood. There's a family kind of connection among fellow believers. Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. You see, what I'm saying is we shouldn't look upon one another in the church as mere acquaintances, as potential business partners or potential clients or customers from whom we could profit, but we ought to look at one another as children in the same family. We have the same father, right? He's regenerated us. We've been born into the same family. He's adopted us. We share something in common here that is a tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. We sang about it just a moment ago, the hymn by John Fawcett, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. There's something about unity in the church that resembles heaven and the saints above before our father's throne notice when jesus taught his disciples to pray he said pray our father notice the collective pronoun our it's a concern for the body more than just the individual here's the challenge i face today it's so easy for me to get caught up in my life my world my responsibilities the 101 things that i need to check off of my daytimer. it's so easy for me to get caught up in what's happening with my kids and my family my grandchildren and my life my friends Christians need to remember I'm part of a family that's bigger than flesh and blood there was once a time Paul says when we knew Jesus Christ after the flesh but henceforth we know him after the flesh no more and so we should know one another In the spirit, not according to flesh and blood. Do you remember what he said when he was told your mother and your brethren are outside the gate wanting to speak with you? Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brethren? These disciples, this is my family. Now I'm not trying to alienate anyone from natural family, but I'm saying that there is a tie that is stronger than flesh and blood. And it's the tie of the spirit of God by which we have been brought into the family of God You know, when we get to heaven, I believe I'll see Lori and she'll be herself and I'll be myself and I'll love her, but I'll not love her as a husband loves a wife. I'll love her perfectly like a child of God loves another child of God in the same way I love everyone else and she will love me. Now, I do want to sit by her in heaven if it's okay, so y'all remember that and make sure that's okay. But it's beyond what I can fathom, but I'm saying, dear friends, that there is a family connection. You see, so many churches today operate as big businesses, corporations, where the people really don't even know each other. And one of the values of having a smaller congregation, a smaller church, not a megachurch, is that we have the opportunity to know each other and to be together and to love each other and to help each other and to act like a family should in connecting with one another on a regular, ongoing basis. Now, I don't mean, you know, being busybodies in other people's affairs. I'm not saying that the pattern is for us to live in community and to share everything in common like the early church did on one occasion. There is a place for private ownership of property And doing your own thing. But at the same time, let's never forget, my friends, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, we're to let brotherly love continue. Now, when he says let it continue, that implies that we could hinder it, doesn't it? Let it continue implies that we might behave in such a way that it wouldn't continue. We need to prioritize brotherly love in the church. Second John verse 1 says, The elder to the elect lady whom I love, not romantically, but in the truth. John loved this Christian woman, but it wasn't a romantic love. It wasn't a sensual or salacious kind of love. It was a love because we share in common the understanding of the gospel of grace. We love Christ alike, and therefore, because he is our connection, we love each other. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, says it like this. Would you listen now? If a man say, I love God, but he hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment, there's the word again, have we from him that he who loveth God love his brother also. So this is a new commandment it's the main rule by which the church is to function there's to be a peculiar love for the peculiar people of god a special bond of affection for and commitment to those of like precious faith jesus is teaching that when he says to the disciples in the upper room shortly before he dies little children love one another now remember jesus has just told them i'm leaving i'm going away that's the context of the upper room discourse and they were heartbroken over that but he says you will still have each other and though i've gone away and he goes on to tell them in john 14 the next chapter i'm going to send the comforter the holy spirit another comforter to abide with you forever so you will have the holy spirit mediating the presence of christ to the church on an ongoing basis but he says you're going to have each other and he says when i'm gone don't turn against each other now interestingly this chapter is set in the context of a conflict of tension between the disciples, and they were questioning among themselves which one was the greatest. This issue keeps coming up through the gospel record. It seems that in the life and ministry of Jesus, the disciples were constantly vying for preference among themselves. They were competing with each other as to who was the most important, who was the most indispensable, who was the most crucial And it shows us how petty we can be because of pride. And Jesus reminds them, when I'm gone, now I'm here and you're doing that, how are you going to treat each other when I'm gone? When I'm gone, it's important for you to remember, this is my one law to you. Love one another. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. And then I want you to notice, it's not only a commandment and a new commandment, but Notice the way that love is measured is new. It's a new standard of measuring love. Again, Leviticus 19, 18 says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But you see, there's a higher standard by which you should measure your love and I should measure mine, not just as we love ourselves, but as I have loved you. The love of Christ is the ultimate standard. This is a new commandment because the standard by which we should measure our love is not what pop culture around us says love should look like. You know the world has one opinion of love. If you really love people you won't ever tell them that their lifestyle is wrong. You won't ever call anything a sin. Well remember we ought to love God supremely. Love for God sometimes means taking a stand against issues that are perceived as unloving by the ungodly world around us. But the standard by which we're to love one another my friends is the lord jesus christ his selfless life of service and ministry to others and his sacrificial death on the cross of calvary and that's what john 13 teaches us Do you remember how jesus corrected this tension between the disciples as to who was the greatest who would be in charge when jesus was no longer here who was indispensable in the church, which one was second in command, in other words. It's a competition among them. And that's just natural to people's sinful nature. You know, that's the way we're wired. But Jesus corrects all of this by saying, if you want to know what's really important in my church and kingdom, it's to take off your garment, gird yourself with a towel, and perform the most menial task, get down at the feet, the rugged calloused feet of an old fisherman like Peter, and do the most menial of tasks like a slave would do. Now, we know that they wore sandals in that day, and that as they walked on the dusty paths that their feet would accumulate dust. And remember at a supper, at a meal, like the last supper where these disciples have assembled for this occasion in the upper room, they did not sit in chairs around a table, but they had a blanket, usually on the floor, and the food was placed on that blanket, and they reclined. They leaned on one elbow with their feet behind them, and they reclined. And, you know, John laid his head on Jesus' breast at supper, so his head would have been here, Jesus' feet would have been here, you know, and the disciples were all around the table. That's how they ate. They reclined for supper. Well, can you imagine having somebody's stinky, dirty feet in your face as you're reclining for a meal? Well, washing the feet, therefore, was crucial. At the beginning of a meal, and it was usually the lowest on the totem pole, the lowest in the hierarchy of the home, the slave who was just, you know, he was doing the most menial of tasks. It was his job to wash the feet of guests before they sat down for a meal. Interestingly, though, on this occasion, Jesus, who's the Lord of glory, he's the CEO, he's the captain, he's the ultimate as far as authority and glory is concerned. He stoops down to do the most menial of tasks as an example to his followers that this is what it means to love other people. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. He poured water into a basin, And he began to wash their feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. And when he came to Peter, Peter, who was the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, I mean, his mouth was always in action before his brain was in gear. Peter says, Lord, no, this is beneath you. Isn't it interesting we find Peter frequently correcting Jesus? (laughs) What kind of audacity must Peter have to think that he could set the record straight and set Jesus straight? But Peter says, Lord, thou shalt never wash my feet. This is beneath you, Jesus. Stand up. Stop. Remember, Peter had tried to correct Jesus on another occasion when Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified. And Peter took him to the side and says, far be it from thee. Stop talking like that. It's defeatist language. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Well, here's another occasion of which Peter has overstepped the bounds and says, no, Lord, this is stop doing this. This is just beneath you to get so low and to do the task of a common servant. But Jesus says, do you know what I've done to you? He asked his disciples. He says, you don't understand it now, but you shall understand it later, hereafter. He says, if I, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, I'm the one who is in the honored position, but I've stooped to the most humble of roles. If I've done that, he says, you ought also to wash one another's feet. He teaches the disciples through this profound and humiliating example. This powerful lesson, he teaches them by taking the lead. He takes the initiative to show them what it means to be a servant. He teaches them how to love each other. Our love is to be measured by Christ. It's a love that serves. That's what Calvary love looks like. It's a love that serves others. It stoops to the most menial of tasks. Nothing is too humiliating for a person who truly loves another person. You know, I've seen that in marriages before when one of the partners becomes indisposed because of illness, disease, you know, whether it's mental or physical, I've seen the other partner continue to care for the loved one, even to the point of bathing that person, spoon feeding that person. I've seen people love each other to the point that they sacrifice. You say, well, don't you have a life? No. The best thing I can do is to show love to somebody in need. That, my friends, is real love. That's sacrificial love. It's Calvary love. It's the love of Christ sacrificial love. It's serving love. It's a love that is willing to waive personal rights for the benefit of another. Oh, my friends, we ought to be willing to sacrifice. Sacrifice our time. What is the most precious asset or commodity at your disposal? I would say time ranks right up there at the top, doesn't it? As my dad was passing, Lori asked him on one occasion, is there anything you need? He said, time just tugged at my heartstrings because time is so fleeting. It's so short. Now, I know some of you little ones may think I've got all the time in the world, but I'm telling you, it passes quickly. I never dreamed it was so fleeting. But time is something we should be willing to sacrifice for those who are in need. I love the language in 1 Corinthians 11:33, where Paul says to the church at Corinth, as they were observing the Lord's Supper, he says, brethren, tarry, for one another. Have you ever thought about that? Terry, that means slow down and wait on those who can't keep up. Terry for one another. Now, that's important in the communion service to say, let's not get in a hurry. Let's just wait until everybody's done. I've seen that practiced among our people many times in the past, but I think the principle is true in many other ways in our lives. There are people who can't keep up. Their little legs can't walk as quickly as yours can so just slow down a little bit and let them catch up you say well I've got things to do places to go people to see I've got to forge full steam ahead he says, slow down a little bit sacrifice time that's what love looks like love is patient with those who don't quite have it all together yet have you ever noticed how Jesus was patient with Philip's slow progress to grasp the truth over it again Philip just doesn't seem to understand Jesus is patient How Jesus was patient with Thomas' doubts and with Peter's impulsiveness and with the entire band of the disciples when they panicked on the Sea of Galilee and huddled in fear and said, Lord, carest thou not that we perish? Jesus arises from his sleep and he doesn't scold them. He doesn't speak any word of recrimination. He just says, peace, be still. He's patient. Love sacrifices not only time, it sacrifices possessions. It gives to those that need, and the ultimate example of that is the cross, isn't it? I love a quote from antiquity. The emperor Hadrian had commissioned one of his officials named Aristides to investigate the Christians. We're talking about circa 125 AD. Hadrian had commissioned Aristides to go investigate the Christians and report back to him. And in his report, Aristides says this about the Christians, the early first century church. They love one another. Now that's his number one emphasis. They love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those that would hurt them. If a man has something, he freely gives to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, Christians take him home and they're happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit in God. And if they hear that one of them is in jail or persecuted for professing the name of their Redeemer, they all give Him what He needs. Even if one of them is poor and there isn't enough food to go around, they will fast for several days to give Him the food that He needs, even denying themselves, if need be, for their brother's sake. Now this is the report from the second century AD of the love that early Christians had for one another. And I wanna tell you that's very rare in our world today. You're not gonna find it in social clubs, civic organizations. You're not going to find it even in many professing Christian churches today, but may our church be one which truly loves one another. For a new commandment, Jesus says, I give unto you that you love one another.